Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Toronto, Ontario. Yes, I am on the road again working on a new project. Can't really talk much about it now, but very excited to share info about that as we can in the future. But it is fun to be back on the road working on some new history projects. But of course, also excited about today's episode. This is one that we recorded about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, where I had the opportunity to talk with Lynn Gale about her new book, entitled Gale v. Canada, Challenging Sex Discrimination in the Indian Act. And Lynn Gale challenged the federal government, specifically in the provision in the Indian Act on unstated paternity, which forced women and children to lose their Indian status if there was unknown paternity in certain cases. And that was the case with Lynn, and she challenged this very long court case that she went through eventually was successful. And a lot of people have put Lynn Gale as part of the famous six of indigenous women who challenged various parts of colonialism in the Indian Act. And she's part of that. And she has written the new book, again, entitled Gale v. Canada, which really profiles this entire case. And the book comes out of articles that she wrote in the moment. So as she was going through the case, various publications put out her work and the book is a compilation of that as well as some more contemporary reflections on the case. Uh, I really enjoyed it when I had the opportunity to go through it. would certainly encourage everybody to check it out. Very important case. If you're not familiar with some of the background of Lynn Gale's case, we talk about it in the episode, but check out the show notes or go over to activehistory.ca with the post. I will link to some of the case notes and some background on this case, a really fascinating situation, and Lynn was certainly very persistent in her efforts to challenge this part of the Indian Act. So I was very grateful for the opportunity to speak with her, and let's get right in to that conversation. So here it is, my chat with Lynn Gale. All right, and Lynn Gale joins me now. Lynn, how are you today? I'm okay. Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm a little exhausted. Yeah, I, I can imagine, uh, certainly, after everything that we've all been through and, and, of course, putting together the finishing touches on this book in, in the course of the last year and a half certainly would have been challenging. I had the opportunity to go through it again. It's Gale versus Canada, Challenging Sex Discrimination in the Indian Act. Very much enjoyed it. And, and there's a few things that really stuck out to me having gone through it. But, but let's start with sort of the core of the case that you brought forth, the 30-year process, as you mentioned just before we started to record, of, of that is profiled in this book. And it seems to me, as someone who's certainly not versed, well-versed in legalese, but the idea of unstated paternity and the paternity policy that comes in in 1985. So anyone who might not be familiar with the background to the case, could you just explain the idea of unstated paternity and what prompted you to pursue this challenge with the federal government? 
Sure, sure. So, um, I, my um, family were non-status Algonquin people. We were living outside of the territory, and that had to do with issues of sex discrimination in the Indian Act, where um, Indian women were enfranchised when they married a white man. Uh, um, and in 1985, through Bill C-31, the Indian Act was amended to bring it in line with the Charter. And what happened in that um, amendment in 1985 was was pretty uh, pretty manipulative in the sense that much of the discrimination continued on, but also. Th- Prior to 1985, there were provisions in the Indian Act that protected children of unknown and unstated paternity. But in 1985, when they amended the Indian Act, they took that clause out and they became silent on it. So they they obfuscated the issue at the the stage of uh, at the level of legislation, and then um, they developed some internal practices and how to deal with the issue of unknown and unstated paternity. And those internal practices, although at the time not a formal written policy, were uh, discriminatory to children. So um, when I applied for Indian status in 1985, I didn't know what they were going to do in the situation of my unknown grandfather on my father's side. And what they did at the level of practice is they essentially essentially they assumed he was a white man and through the process I was denied Indian status. So in short, prior to 1985, they had provisions to protect children of unknown and instituted paternity, but after 1985, they, they didn't. And what prompted you? What, what was the motivation for you to pursue this case? You you talk in the book a little bit about how it was, you know, you're an adult at this point when, when this comes up and you're, you're trying to, I think, this is how I read it, almost really reconcile your identity and your, your place within this community. And while this is going on, the government is putting this, this rule in place. So what was that motivation for you to pursue it legally? While at the same time, it seemed to me that personally you're you're going through this process of understanding your heritage, your family, and the relationships that, that come along with that. Like so, so how did you balance that? Was what was the motivation moving forward? Well, you know, I grew up in Toronto with um, you know, seven brothers and sisters. We were ten people in a thousand square feet, sharing one toilet. So we were, you know, very poor people. We were denied who we were because of racism and sexism. I really didn't even have a full understanding of who I was as, a, as an Algonquin person. Um, and um, of course, identity issues, you know, in high school, people start to identify with who they are as being Portuguese or Italian or German. I really couldn't do that because the knowledge of who I was as an indigenous person was pushed underground because of cultural genocide. So um, eventually when the Indian Act was amended, um, I I just started to do the research of who my, my ancestors were, who my father was, who my grandmother was, and uh, applied for Indian status registration. Um, because I knew that we came from Golden Lake, which is now called Pickwakinagon First Nation. So I really didn't have much of a community. I didn't have a community, although I knew about my kinship relationships um, with members of Pickwakinagon First Nation. 
And I think the reason why I pursued it was because um, I think it was just morally the right thing to do. Did you have any sense at the time that it would take as long as it did? No. No. It was, um, and it, it took actually longer than what people think it took because my my great grandmother applied uh, and asked the Indian agent if she was an Indian in around 1945, I think it was. So this this issue went on for generations. For me personally, I it took about 30 years. Uh, but it really was an intergenerational thing, including my father, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother. Now, the book talks about how this challenge was pursued under the Charter of Rights and Freedom. And you do talk a little bit in the introduction about how the Charter did not protect you, right? That the Charter is, is put in place, designed to protect, as it says, the rights and freedoms of all people uh, who live in in what is now Canada and you talk about how it doesn't protect you. So how do you think of the charter, having gone through this process, having lived through the experience of the charter not protecting you, and thinking about it too as another tool of colonialism? Like, is, is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the way you conceive of it, something that works towards furthering the colonial project, given the lack of protection that it offered to you and people in the same situation? Yeah, that's a really important question. Thank you so much for um, for that. So the charter was brought in um, as part of the, the um, Constitution when it was, um, I don't know, repatriated in 1982. And, um, and it also replaced the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights um, was inadequate in protecting Indigenous women. We know that because of... Um, um, Jeanette Corbier-Laval and Yvonne Bedard, their case was... Um, the Bill of Rights didn't protect them. And so then they brought in the Charter of Rights. And my understanding that the the Charter, um, a lot of the advocacy that feminists uh, took on was based on the fact that the um, Bill of Rights failed Indigenous women. Uh, but the Charter also fails Indigenous women. And I think what's really important when I say that is that a lot of people might say, well, that's because of my lawyers at Aboriginal Legal Services were inadequate. And and that's not true because Sharon McIver um, took a similar case through and the Charter of Rights failed her as well. She had to go to the United Nations um, after, you know, her case was uh, heard in in. In, at the Court of Appeal in British Columbia. So the charter the charter did fail me. It does fail Indigenous women. And I really don't feel warm and fuzzy about the charter. Um, what I learned about the charter is that it really, the lawyers, uh, the judges, they really don't want to make any um, decisions based on the charter. They don't want to use charter law, what I mean by, uh, that's what I mean by that. And also, um, I found that the the judges were just inadequate, mm -hmm. and and some of the arguments were making they were making were, were incredibly pitiful. So, for example, at the superior court level, the judge ruled that my application was treated the same as a man's application, and so there's no sex discrimination um, there, and that's just completely ridiculous because she didn't at all look at what was inherent in the law and how it may be hurting uh, women more than men. Mm. So uh, the charter is a failure to me. It, it, and what I also learned about the charter was, um, 
that it only it's only about individual rights so my discrimination came from my father and his mother and the lawyers and the judges ruled in a way that uh, i think um only looked at sex discrimination as it affected me as an individual not the discrimination i inherited from my grandmother for example right right so it, it doesn't recognize the intergenerational trauma that has come with colonialism and therefore obviously there's that's a failing to the charter and as you mentioned it, it is focused pretty much exclusively on the individual rights without acknowledging or allowing space for the damage done to a collective or a community as a whole yes and i would not say trauma i would say the the intergenerational sex discrimination right. because the charter says in section 15 that you know sex discrimination is not acceptable. So I, I wouldn't use the word trauma, although certainly trauma was a result of it. So how do you think of yourself? Because a lot of what comes up when you Google yourself, and, and I don't know if you've ever Googled yourself, uh, but it, it when it comes up, it talks about the, the famous six, that you are part of the, this group of Indigenous women who challenged the federal government in various ways and it's akin to the famous five from the early part of the 20th century that that story tends to be focused around the person's case when it eventually went through so i'm curious to know how do you think of yourself in this particular case within the context of the larger movement towards greater rights and acknowledgement for indigenous people specifically indigenous women's uh, rights as challenged through these legal cases that you, of course, are, are part of that. Like, just how do you think of your place and your the, the place of this particular case within this larger movement? Oh, thank you for asking that question. So, um, I um, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a historian, or am I a feminist, but um, I do understand systems of power. And so concepts of 61A all the way and the famous uh, six, they were birthed, strategically birthed as a way to give the ideology more currency. And they, they were birthed, um, I, I consciously and intentionally birthed them for that purpose. Actually, it was the indigenous famous five at first, but then FAFIA, the Feminist Alliance for International Action, expanded it to the indigenous famous six, which which uh, was a good idea because we needed to, again, give the ideology currency. Um, and so I don't th think um, that I am a famous person. I think that what we were doing was strategically inventing constructs for the purpose of, of addressing the issue. Um, and I think it worked. Uh, 61A all the way was fist pumped by the senators as well as the United Nations um, ruling on MacGyver used six, the concept of 61A all the way. So um, I, I where do I place myself? Well, you know, I'm not in the public eye as much as some wonderful women are like Cindy Blackstock and, and Pam Palmer. I think they're so brave and I'm so grateful for them. I'm a little bit less in the public eye and and that's that's okay with me um so in terms of the larger broader issues with indigenous people i am not naive in understanding that indigenous rights um uh, are are 
about land and Canada not giving us our land and our resources. I'm not naive about that. Um, some people may say that I just wanted to be an Indian and I suffer from uh, cognitive colonization, which is not the case at all. I have a, a, a broader understanding of, of Indigenous rights. So as an, as an Algonquin person um, who, you know, Parliament Hill sits on my land illegally, I am quite well aware of the broader context of Indigenous rights and women within that context. Well, it's interesting that you say that too, because the first thing that I read in this book was the dedication. And in the dedication, you write that there's a difference between living as an Indigenous person and having Indigenous heritage. And the you make that distinction very clearly. So how do you define those two things? And it, it does come up, and again, you talk about this early in the book as well, the idea of people who have claimed Indigenous heritage or an Indigenous identity for various gains, whether that's uh, you know scholarships that we see. There, there are certainly cases that we see at universities across the country of faculty members who have claimed uh, indigeneity, and there are questions surrounding that in some cases and the controversy uh, that, that comes along with that. So this idea, the, the difference between living as an Indigenous person and, again, having that Indigenous heritage, how do you try to define those two things? And how can someone like me, potentially, who, who reads about these stories, how can we try to understand what the difference between those two concepts are? Sure, that's that's a great question. So I would say that um, a, a person with an indigenous indigenous heritage, they have an ancestor that was an indigenous person from a long time ago, but they're not living their life as an indigenous person. They're not protecting the land. They're not um, in the indigenous uh, paradigm. Um, whereas in, in a person who is living their life as, as an Indigenous person, they are in the Indigenous paradigm. They are doing the care work that is needed, um, and they are trying to live within within their their place in natural law. Um, after the after the trees, for example, and after the four legged. So I think um, I think it's really important that. The, to understand that the difference is conceptual too, like um, uh, that's that's a very difficult thing to to, to express other than to say um, indigenous people in the paradigm are different than somebody who says, "Oh, I have an ancestor from the 1600s." Right. And, and I think that that makes sense to think of it in, in that that way, given you know, how long it's been since Europeans first arrived on the shores across the Atlantic Ocean that, you know, bloodlines and, and sort of descendants and family trees, they, they can get all mixed up. And, and, you know, in a lot of cases for a lot of people, you don't always know who who your uh, where your heritage comes from and, and who is part of that family tree. So making that distinction, I, I think, makes a lot of sense. And, and the way you described it certainly, uh, I think, is a digestible for, again, someone like me who's not fully immersed uh, in, in uh, indigenous cultures across the country. So, uh, so I appreciate that, that response. And I, you know, Sean, I would yeah. also say that an indigenous person within, living within the worldview, um, they have a memory of who they are, mm. uh, a family memory of who they are. I certainly had a family memory of who I was. 
um, versus somebody who goes out and does their genealogy and finds out they have someone in the 1600s. Right. Uh, but now I also have to be careful because there's a lot of children who have been adopted out. Yep. And of course they don't, a lot of them don't know who they are. So it's a very complex situation. Um, the, the other thing I want to say is that I think I also dedicated the, the book to, to people of unknown and unstated paternity because I think that's a really horrible situation to be in. Yes. Yeah. You did. Uh, that is included in the dedication. Yeah. And well, I, I mean, from your experience, what is that? Like how, how challenging is it to have that unknown paternity or unstated paternity uh, when, when you're thinking about questions of identity and, and participation in the community and just thinking just in generally about your background, your heritage and, and your family? Well, for me, it's not that difficult because, you know, children are, are, are born from women. Uh, women um, conceive life. They, they, uh, they just, they're the, the just, what's the right word? Um, Gestation gestation and they also open that eastern doorway and they do a majority of the nurturing so to me uh, it's really not that challenging i'm in the indigenous paradigm i understand that children um, um you always know who your mother is you don't always know who your father is i know that we always adopted children uh, there was no such thing as illegitimate children i know that parenting was a social process versus a, a biological process and so for me, I don't really have an issue with not knowing who that person was um, because, you know, my father made sure that I understood who I was as an Algonquin person. He brought me to uh, where my great grandmother was from, which was Golden Lake. And he also made sure I understood who my cousins were. So um contradictorily that all that was pushed underground as well. We, we didn't really talk about being Algonquin in, in an explicit sense. So I don't have really an issue with not knowing who that unknown grandfather is. I think there are people out there who don't know who their father is and that's giving them distress. Um, especially, you know, they don't, they know they're indigenous because of their phenotype physiology, but they have no idea who the man was. Right. Right. And, and yeah, that does present some, some additional uh, issues and questions that come up. No, no question about it. So uh, I, I'm also curious to ask you about the political realities that surrounded your case. You, you're very open in the book about how when you started this process and when you started writing publicly that you weren't really familiar with the political situation or the political ramifications of it. And as I went through it, you could kind of see in the writing a little bit the awareness that you had, the the realization of the political realities that's going on surrounding you, surrounding the case. And I'm curious to, to know from you, did you have that sense as well as you went back and, and put this together, found the old writing, went through and edited it, read it again? Did you have a sense of the progression or your increasing familiarization with the political realities of what was going on and your place within the political situation as this case progressed? Yeah, so I started when I was in my 20s and I could barely read or write. And so, um, and I was pretty ignorant, you know, even in terms of who I was as an Algonquin went underground, although I did know I was Algonquin. 
So, um, you know, you do a lot of, and then I happened to, you know, I, I quit my job and I uh, went to um, undergraduate school at university and, you know, I learned how to read and write. And then I moved on and, and did a master's and, and then a PhD. And so there's a lot of intellectual growth there, right? And um, where I did my PhD, there was a lot of focus on indigenous knowledge. So I, I kept moving deeper and deeper into the paradigm of, of, of the uh, indigenous worldview. So, and then uh, I certainly was aware that um, a lot of people didn't like the fact that I was challenging the Indian Act. A lot of people were very assumptive and opinionated about me. Um, and as I grew, you know, I began to realize that being a status Indian really did not make me who I was as an indigenous person. But at the same time, I knew I couldn't quit because, you know, when do you quit? Five years into it or 10 years into it or 15 years into it? At 15 years and 10 years, you just can't quit something like that, especially when you know that there's indigenous women out there who, who um, they don't know who the baby's uh, father is and they don't want to say who the baby's father is because of abuse and incest and rape. And so I, you realize that uh, you have a moral responsibility to complete the task, whether you think it's important to your identity or not. And so I pursued it. But at the same time, I was also looking at the deeper political, broader political issues around Indigenous rights, such as uh, within the Algonquin land claim process, where we continue to be denied our land and re um, resources. So um, it's complicated, and some people judged me really hard, harshly for the contradiction of, of pursuing Indian status registration, yet not um, being happy about the, the denial of land and resources rights that Canada was imposing on us. But I could navigate that contradiction, and I still can navigate that contradiction. And people really should think hard about criticizing me for pursuing this court case and for um, assuming that I was ignorant about what was going on. Right. And I think that comes clear or comes through clearly in the book that you're able to to navigate all that as you go through it. And as the book progresses, uh, that becomes clearer and clearer. But at the same time, towards the beginning, you also put 20, 10 qualifiers for readers in the book. And how much of including those 10 qualifiers, which were very instructive to me, when I read it before going through the rest of the book. So I appreciate certainly that, that it was there, but how much of the decision to include those 10 qualifiers was the result of some of the criticism you got and wanting to orient your readers to know that you were aware of, of what was going on. And this is how, as you said, you navigate the space in between. Oh, those 10 qualifiers came really late in the process of completing the book. And um, they certainly were to um, quell the assumptions that people were imposing on me. And I, I think that I think they accomplish it uh, extremely well. Uh, I have to say that uh, it's very upfront, it's very direct, it's very clear in what is trying to be accomplished with the ten qualifiers. And as I, and as I said, as a reader, I appreciated that they were there. Really tease up the book very well. I, I thought. So, uh, so again, I appreciated them and I'm curious now that you've gone through it, now that the book is coming out later this week and, and people can already pre-order it and certainly we encourage everybody to do it. How, how do you reflect on the writing? How do you reflect on this project and what do you hope that audiences and readers get when they read the book? 
how horrible a process it was for me, um, how Canada continues to fail Indigenous women, how, can, how, how Canada's uh, legal system continues to fail Indigenous people. Um, uh, they get to observe the growth of a thinker. Um, how difficult it is to to create change and 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 how the Canadian state narrows that change to something that's almost not even measurable um, to understand that indigenous women have been speaking out about the sex discrimination in the Indian Act since the 1960s with Mary 2x early and here we are in 2021 and there's still sex discrimination continues the issue of um, unknown and unstated paternity, the core issue is still not addressed. Um, my, ca my case rested on uh, circumstantial evidence. They wouldn't even use the charter. They used administrative law to, to make the decision. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in this time of missing and murdered Indigenous women, uh, where women are getting pregnant and the man isn't around, which is part of natural law, but it's also part of rape um, and power, that Canada is not protecting those babies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and certainly it, it's a very meaningful, powerful story and something that remains very relevant. And we definitely encourage everybody to go and pick up the book. So Lynn, if people want more information about the book or want to pick it up, uh, where can they find it? And if they want more information about you in the case, uh, where can they go? Sure. Can I just say that one other thing yeah. I think that people should be able to get from this book is that Indigenous people are not standing around and letting this happen, but ca the Canadian legal system and Canadian politicians are doing this to us. We have done our work for 50 years. Indigenous women have tried to address the sex discrimination. And when you also look at the land claim and self-government process, the same applies there, that we are doing our work, but Canada does not want to address it. The cultural genocide continues. Um, and so I think that's our, uh, another contribution to the book is that we are doing our work, but it doesn't seem to be enough. There, Canada lacks a political will or Canada lacks the, the um, mandate to further its cultural genocide. Um, and I'm not alone on that. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission, they both concluded that co uh, colonial genocide continues. Mm -hmm. So... Um, in terms of where they can get the book, well, it was public. It's published with the University of Regina Press, and they can get it uh, through them. They can also go through www.lingale.com and, and and find a, a link to the to the book there. Yeah, and as I said, we encourage everybody to check it out again. Uh, Lynn Gale, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today, and I really appreciate you taking the the time to speak with me. Oh, thank you so much, Sean, and your questions were great. So there you have it, my chat with Lynn Gale, and I thank her for her time. And again, the book is Gale v. Canada, Challenging Sex Discrimination in the Indian Act. So be sure to check that one out and do check in the show notes. We'll have links to all the information, not only about the book, but about the case. Or head on over to activehistory.ca with the post associated with this episode. Everything will be linked there, so do check that all out. And I do thank Lynn for setting it up and our friends over at the University of Regina Press for helping out with this episode. So that will do it for this week. My apologies. A little later 
been scheduled with me being on the road, but very excited to get this one out. Do head on over to activehistory.ca. Check out all the posts as we are back in full form here in September. The schedule is absolutely loaded. So be sure to check in frequently as we have some great posts, including the new series about history and and bikes and the connection between everything. Uh, Really fascinating series over there. So a lot of great material coming out over on the site. And if you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever you get your podcast, do likes, comments, ratings, all that good stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, feel free to get in touch history slam at gmail.com or I'm on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back with you again soon, but until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.